I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A young teen's life would forever change after accepting a ride from a seemingly nice older man. She would become a symbol of bravery, strength, and resilience, igniting change that would save countless lives. This is the Mary Vincent story. Hi, Megan. Hey, Amy. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. How's your break? Excellent. How is your break going? Much needed. You hosted for Christmas? Uh, I hosted me, James, and my mother. I don't know if I'd call that hosting. And James did all the cooking. It was magnificent. Excellent. I'm glad you enjoyed. And to our listeners, we hope you're all enjoying a wonderful holiday with family and friends. We hope you have a happy new year. Yeah, I hope you all have a wonderful happy new year. I will not be doing much this year. Me either. (laughs) (laughs) We should be spending it together, but oh well. I know. Hopefully next year. Yeah, that's true. So what do we have for our listeners today? Since we're in the holiday season, we're taking a little break. So this week, we are sharing a recent Patreon episode with our general audience. And Megan, the reason we're doing this is one of our amazing patrons actually suggested that we do so, given that this case is so important and so inspiring. I I saw that too, and I thought that was really generous. And it's definitely not something that we do regularly, but this one was important. and, And we are happy to be able to bring you this episode during our holiday break. Well, we hope you all have a wonderful holiday. And we look forward to seeing you in the new year with season three of Women and Crime and some other new shows to look forward to. 
wow, season three already. Mm -hmm. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to get more like it, if you want to get that extra episode every month, head over to Patreon and join us. All right. We'll be back with brand new episodes in two weeks. But for now, enjoy the Mary Vincent episode. Mary Vincent was born in 1968 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Her father had served time in the military and also worked as a mechanic fixing casino machines, and her mother worked as a blackjack dealer. Mary's family was large. She was one of seven children, and they all resided together in Las Vegas. Growing up, Mary was a competitive dancer, and she always believed that she would make a career out of performing. Now, there was said to be some tension in the family. Her mother and father would end up separating after which her father moved to Alaska to join the National Guard while her mother stayed in Vegas as a blackjack dealer. Now, Mary was what some would consider a tough kid. She argued a lot with her parents. When she was a teenager, she often skipped school and she would run off with her boyfriend. She actually ended up leaving and living with her boyfriend in a car for a whole summer in California. Wow. Yeah, but this was until authorities apprehended him on rape charges. Oh, she had a minor? No, it actually wasn't uh, a case that had to do with her. He had raped somebody else. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So once her boyfriend was arrested, she decided she would return home. So she goes back to Vegas for a short time, and then she runs away again. This time, she was headed toward California and possibly to stay with her grandfather in Corona, California. Now, this is just east of L.A. in Riverside County. As Mary tells it, the specific reason she left home on that particular occasion was because her sister had told her that their dad was coming home with a migraine and he was mad at her, saying, quote, you better run. So she says she did. Due to a lack of a car, she planned to hitchhike to her grandfather's house. Now, Megan, we're talking about the late 70s. This was extremely common for teenagers at this time. So I just want to put this in context because I know a lot of our listeners are young, even younger than we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hitchhiking reached its peak in popularity in the 60s and 70s. And then it kind of fell out of favor as we got towards the 90s. Why did it the popularity peak? Well, during first of all, during the Depression, gas was expensive and not everyone owned cars. Hitchhiking was also romanticized. It was part of the hippie movement. It was seen as something like cool, an individualized way to, you know, express yourself, do what you want to do, get from coast to coast. But why did it go down in favor? Well, more people own cars. It's also hitchhiking is banned on certain interstates in some states. But it's funny, Megan, because I was thinking about hitchhiking. I'm like, how is it any different than ride sharing like Uber, Lyft? Um, just because, you know, with Uber, someone's been hired. They can be tracked, I guess. Yeah. Like but I know you're saying it's like the modern day hitchhiking in a way, if you think about it, right? I think you're right. But I also would say that I'm not really entirely comfortable getting in Ubers. So I don't do that a lot because I do think that like I'm getting in a car with a stranger and I don't know what's going to happen. And there have been cases. Yeah, there's been cases where um, I, Uber drivers have, you know, murdered or assaulted or I, I don't, I, you know, I remember it was like someone posing as an Uber driver or something like that. Yeah. I'm surprised we haven't covered any of those cases yet. Well, there's always time. There is. All right. So on the way towards her grandfather's home, she would hitch a ride here and there. She would sometimes live on the streets for days at a time, sometimes sleeping inside unlocked cars, sometimes sleeping outside. And she says this kind of behavior was really commonplace and she didn't fear for her safety at all. As such, she kept on heading towards her final destination via rides from strangers. On September 29, 1978, 
While in Berkeley, California, Mary had met two other hitchhikers who were going the same way as her, and the three decided that they would travel together. The trio walked along the freeway with a sign waiting for someone to pull over. They weren't having much luck at first, and as night approached, Mary said she was just getting really tired and impatient. This is when a blue van slowed down and approached her. Driving this van was a 50-year-old merchant seaman named Lawrence Singleton. Now, Lauren Singleton, you'll hear me refer to him as Larry mm. interchangeably. Okay. Okay. So, Megan, I think this is where we see the first red flag. Tell me what you think. Now, remember, Mary was with two other individuals. However, Larry offered a ride to Mary and Mary only. And he told the others he had no space in the van for the rest of them. Sorry, but big <laughs> red flag. Yeah, that's. Yeah. And now we're talking a big van and he was alone. So to me, that's a big red flag, right? Yeah. Regardless, she was exhausted. Mary accepted his offer and she got into the van. And her travel buddies had advised her not to, but she said she felt comfortable because he just seemed like an old man. And also she was put at ease when Larry told her he had a daughter that was just about her age. I like how 50 is an old man now, just by the way. You said 50, <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm approaching old womanhood. <laughs> all right, go ahead, sorry. It's all, it's all relative. She was only 15. I know, I know. He also had told Mary that he was headed to Reno, but he would happily change course to take her to Los Angeles. Remember, where she was headed was just on the outskirts of the city. This Isn't this totally different directions and like hours of travel? So why would this stranger go almost 11 hours out of his way for her? There's no reason. For me, this is another red flag. No, this is this is really, this doesn't seem good. Well, despite these potential red flags and despite the concerns of her fellow travelers, she got in the van and the two drove off, leaving the two other hitchhikers behind. The first sign of trouble came after Mary lit up a cigarette shortly after she accepted the ride. So at this point, she sneezed. And when she sneezed, Singleton reached over and put his hand on her neck, asking if she was sick. Vincent did not like the physical contact, as would none of us probably. No. <laughs> and she told him so. She pulled out of his reach and she tried to inch away as far as she could. And she told him that that was unacceptable. And he apologized and the van rode on. Soon Mary drifted off to sleep. It's kind of unclear how long she nodded off for. She's not really sure, so we don't know. But when she awoke, she immediately noticed that they were headed in the wrong direction. She was scared and she was angry. At this point, Mary starts reaching around because she wants something to protect herself with or, you know, to possibly something that could maybe intimidate the driver. Mm -hmm. Under her seat, she found a sharp stick. This was like a survey stick. It's like a construction tool that's used to take measurements. So she pretty much took this stick and pointed it at Larry and demanded that he turn the van around and take her to where she was headed. So he obliged and he calmly apologized, reassuring that he was, quote, just an honest man who made an honest mistake. Vincent believes he was remorseful and again the ride continued. After driving for a little bit longer, Larry stated that he needed to use the restroom and he pulled the van over in Del Puerto Canyon in a remote area just east of San Jose, California. When Larry got out of the van, Mary got out as well. Now, some reports say she got out to stretch her legs while others say that she was planning on running after getting creepy vibes from the driver. Regardless, upon getting out of the van, she bent down to tie her shoe. This is when she was hit over the head with a sledgehammer, knocking her unconscious. Oh, wow, a sledgehammer. Oh, my God. Yeah. When she came to, Larry was standing over her, demanding her to perform oral sex on him or else she would die. Oh. She was then dragged back to the van and viciously raped. 
These attacks lasted hours, with Mary going in and out of consciousness. She was repeatedly told not to scream or he would kill her and to obey him if she wanted to live. And Megan, you know, it's also doubtful anyone would have heard her because they were in this remote canyon. But either way, you know, either way, she was obliging because she believed that would save her life. Exactly. She was begging him to leave, but she wasn't screaming and flailing because I think she realized that nothing would come of that. Eventually, Mary was thrown into the back of the van and her hands and feet were tied very tightly. Singleton proceeded to drive deeper into the canyon, where he forced Mary to drink a jug of unknown liquid. Now, she says it was some sort of alcohol, but she didn't know exactly what kind. Afterward, she was again sexually assaulted multiple times over the course of the night. Throughout the attack, she came in and out of consciousness several times, and at one point, she realized Larry was fast asleep. However, she wasn't able to free herself. Aww. Can you imagine being that close to being able to get free and then realizing that you just can't get out of your tight binds? Oh, this I mean, this whole thing is really awful, but that's touches another terrible addition to this. Mm -hmm. When Larry awoke, she begged him to let her go once again, and she promised she would not tell anyone what had happened. Larry then ordered Mary, who was naked and badly injured, to lie on the edge of the road, all the while she was pleading with him to let her go. According to Mary, his response was, quote, you want to be free? I'll set you free. And then walked back to the van to retrieve something. Well, you know what he was retrieving? No. A hatchet. Oh. He returned with a hatchet. He held her down and he cut off her right arm. (gasps) And although she was in immense pain, she maintained her consciousness as he did the same to her left arm. Oh, my God. So. Basically, with five swings of a hatchet, he had cut off both of her forearms. Now, you should hear the way she describes this in interviews. It is shocking that she was able to remain conscious during this and not go into shock. She was holding on to his arm as a way to keep him from, you know, stabbing her. And then he ended up cutting off her arm and her her hand was still attached to his arm. Her hand was attached to his. Oh, my God. So she explains it as I was holding on to him and then all of a sudden I felt myself falling backwards and I couldn't understand how I was falling backwards if I was holding on. And then she was she explained how Larry could not get her hand off of his arm because the muscles were tensed when he had cut them. As you would expect after what she just endured, Mary was heavily bleeding and was in shock. At first, she says she actually felt no pain at all. It was clear that Larry thought he had killed her. She laid quietly on the ground, and I'm not sure whether this was because she was in pain or because she wanted him to think that she was dead, but either way, he believed that she was dead, I think. Because he left? Well, before leaving, he threw her body over a 30-foot cliff. Oh, my God. As if that's not enough, he stuffed her in a culvert pipe. Do you know those pipes that are, you see them, um, they're like kind of by drainage ditches at the roadside. They're typically 12 to 18 inches in diameter. They're like metal or plastic. Yes, I know what you're talking about. They have like ridges on them. Yep. Anyway, so he stuffed her body in one of those. After throwing, and then, her, after throwing her off a cliff. So he went to, all right. He threw her down, <sighs> then went down after her to stuff her in a pipe. Then he climbed his way back up the embankment and drove off, leaving what he thought was a deceased Mary. Uh, I don't know this story. I don't know how I don't, but I'm 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 like in shock. Very few things shock me, but this is shocking. Miraculously, however, Mary was still alive. 
While in the pipe, Mary says that she was in severe pain and she was very sleepy, but a voice inside her said she needed to make it out alive and stay awake. And this was all to ensure that Larry could never hurt anyone else again. Can you imagine the strength? She's at the bottom of a ravine. She's bleeding profusely. She's alone, scared, naked. Yet she somehow manages to walk nearly three miles to the road to look for help. Three miles? Three miles. She says she followed what she says was the sounds of a nearby freeway. Keep in mind, Megan, she's only 15 years old. Unbelievable. During the trek, she says she, quote, walked on her arm stumps so that the mud and dirt would pack in the wounds and slow the bleeding. So she says she then continued with her arms raised once she made it to the roadway. What do you mean her arms raised? She doesn't have any arms. Her arms were not gone. They were gone below the elbows. Oh, the forearms. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. So she she said once she used them, she packed it in with mud and dirt. When she got to the roadway looking for help, she kept them above her head to slow the bleeding and to keep her muscles from falling out. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, it was very early in the morning. The road was extremely quiet, as we would expect. It was a remote area to begin with. Now, at one point, she saw a car with two male passengers. However, upon seeing her, they sped away. And Mary says she doesn't blame them because if you picture the scene, you know, naked, bloody, missing your forearms in the middle of nowhere, um, she says she probably would have done the same thing, which I think is incredible that she could say that. Finally, another car approached, and this time the car slowed down. In this car, there was a couple who were on their honeymoon who had made a wrong turn. Not a good honeymoon surprise, but luckily for her, yeah. Yeah. Luckily, they stopped to help. They wrapped her in some linens that they had in the car, and they drove her to a nearby airport where they called an ambulance. And she was conscious. She told them, he raped me. He raped me. She repeated that. Wow. While in the hospital, Vincent was able to give the police an extremely detailed description of Singleton. Some sources said that she actually wasn't able to recall what he looked like until she was hypnotized. Remember, hypnosis used to be used more often in the 70s and the 80s. It has dwindled since then, and it actually has been banned in most places as being unreliable. But I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but forensic hypnosis was actually used to help convict serial killer Ted Bundy. No, I don't think I knew that. that How? I believe it was one of the sorority sisters who helped the police put together a sketch. Ah, right, right, right. The sorority massacre or the sorority. Oh, that was terrible. Okay, got it. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. So Mary, you know, Mary couldn't recall her attacker. She went she underwent hypnosis that helped make the composite sketch. Now, we've seen some composite sketches that are not accurate at all. Mm -hmm, But this one, in my opinion, is a dead ringer for Larry. Oh, really? Yeah. Look it up. I mean, he has a very distinct nose. So I think that helps. Oh, okay. Clearly, I'm going to look now. Clearly, I want to look it up. After the sketch was complete, it was broadcasted on the news. And very quickly, a woman from San Pablo, California, recognized the sketch as her longtime friend and neighbor, Larry Singleton. And of course, she immediately contacted the police. Good. Yep. As a result of this tip, Singleton was arrested on October 9th, 1978, for his attack against Mary Vincent. Megan, wait till you hear what his claim was. It's absolutely ludicrous. So he told police, yes, Mary was in fact a hitchhiker, but she was a prostitute. And when he picked up Mary... She was with two other people. And guess what? One of the men that she was with had the name Larry. Wait, um, I don't know where he's going with this. Then he's saying the other Larry did this? Yeah, pretty much. So basically, he couldn't even like think of a fake name. He had to use his own name. That shows how clever this man is. 
So he tells the police that he picked up Mary, Larry, and another man who I believe was named Pablo. And he said that these men were the ones who attacked her and they are framing Larry Singleton. This is the most ridiculous. I mean, out of all the ridiculous claims. Yeah. I mean, the story made no sense and the police clearly were not buying it. There was a massive amount of physical evidence against him and Singleton was tried six months after his arrest. And on March 29th, 1979, he was found guilty of multiple charges, including attempted murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, and many more. Oh, my God. It must have been so hard for her to face him, too, in court to have to relive being in the same room with him. It's just it's like trauma upon trauma. Well, wait till you hear what happens in the courtroom. Oh, so she, God, okay. Yeah, so she does bravely testify against him, telling the jury everything he had done to her in excruciating detail. And this was why Larry was staring her down the whole time. But at one point during the proceedings, Megan, she walked past him and he said to her, I will finish this job if it takes the rest of my life. No. Can you imagine the fear And she's still so young. And how stupid is he to say that? Uh, You know, he's defending it. Like, I mean, how stupid is he? He's just dumb. Sorry. I I just. I'm not sure that. No, I I agree. I'm not sure that the jury heard, you know, or if it was reported later. But either way. Like somebody heard, though. So you you really can't maintain your innocence and then threaten to, you know, finish the job or kill someone. This poor girl. Wait till you hear about his sentence, Megan. (sighs) Because the laws in California at the time were so lax, he was sentenced to 14 years. And that's all together for all the charges to be served concurrently. Now, Megan, this was the maximum sentence that he could receive at the time for his crimes. I mean, the judge's hands were tied. In fact, the judge in the case actually remarked that if he had the power, he would have sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in prison. So, Megan, we have to stop here (laughs) and talk about this. I fail to see how 14 years would be the maximum um, on attempted murder, kidnapping, sexual assault. I mean, I have to imagine there were so many charges, but because I guess they were served concurrently and not consecutively for people. I think a lot of people know, like most of our patrons know, but if you don't, consecutive means you just keep adding that time on. So if you get four years and seven years, you're serving 11 years. But concurrently means you can serve the sentences all as one. So those numbers all get pushed together and you just receive one sentence instead of, you know, serving one after the other. So basically the law just didn't allow for it. The law provided for a certain amount of time for each one of these charges and the judge couldn't go past that maximum. They can't take that kind of discretion. They can work within it and possibly go underneath it, but they can't exceed what the law allows which is why his hands were tied. I'm, I am shocked that the laws were mm-hmm. so lax. I mean, yeah. the laws have changed significantly. You know, the 60s and the 70s uh, or the 50s, 40s even, um, that was really the time of, like you said, indeterminate sentencing. And that was really more about open sentences, but also we were just much, much less punitive. So our laws have gotten a lot harsher in terms of sentence severity. Um, and that's like, across states and the federal government. And and that didn't happen really um, until the 80s and 90s when we kind of had that war on crime, war on drugs, you know, that started with Nixon, but it was when Reagan and Bush, Reagan really amped it up. Um, So we were a lot less punitive at the time when he basically was sentenced. The judge was not the only one who was kind of outraged at this. The public was 
very angry at the sentence because the brutality of the crimes against Vincent were made very clear in the media. So once he was sentenced, he was sent to a California state prison in San Luis Obispo, and he would eventually be released early. Megan, this guy got parole. Wait, not only that, he only ended up serving eight years and four months of his 14 year sentence. Now, can I explain to you why he was released? I mean, I don't even want to know, but go ahead. Yeah. So he was released early based on accrued work credits and good behavior. Now, people would say that this was because of the 1983 California Work Incentive Program. So if you recall, there was a time where right before we got really tough on crime, we were a little bit soft on crime. Some would say too soft on crime. Right. Work furloughs for people that are violent offenders. Oh, and not only so he was released early based on accrued work credits and good behavior. He also received time served for the time he had spent in jail leading up to trial, which that I understand. We see that all the the time. But regardless, this is not someone who should have been paroled after having only served eight years of his 14 year sentence, which was already too short. Certainly not. Not only was this crime so brutal, there was a psychiatric evaluation which concluded, quote, Because he is so out of touch with his hostility and anger, he remains an elevated threat to others' safety, both inside and outside of prison. Unbelievable. I mean, a prosecutor on this case even said, well, we're going to be seeing him again when he commits his next crime. So everyone knew. It's almost like people knew that this was a bad idea to let him out. I have no idea why any parole board thought it was a good idea. I don't know. But the good news is, There was this massive backlash because of his early release. It made national headlines and it prompted California residents to demand stricter laws regarding the kinds of crimes that were committed against Mary Vincent. So in response to his early release, the Singleton bill was passed. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay. So in the state of California, basically it prohibited the early release of perpetrators who commit crimes that involve torture. Because I think we'd all agree that what he did to Mary was very much torture. Oh, yeah. It also changed the minimum sentence from any crime involving torture to 25 years. I like that. So, you know, this would have assured that Singleton would have served at least 41 years. Big difference with eight years. Wow. So he ended up getting paroled when he left prison. Okay. But he only had parole for about 11 months. And not surprisingly, no community wanted him. He was literally forced out of communities by public protest. Oh, yeah. I could see that. Every time he tried to go anywhere, people would be like, nope, not here. So do you know where he ended up living while he was on parole? Uh, Like a halfway house or? Kind of. I mean, he ended up living in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin because that is the only place that would take him. Wow. Okay. So meanwhile, Mary was trying to put her life back together. Now, she had two prosthetic arms that allowed her to grasp objects with hooks at the end. She was attending school. She even graduated the University of Nevada. But she was struggling. Of course. I mean, she was isolated, depressed. Um, Remember I mentioned she was a dancer earlier on? She could no longer dance because the doctors had to take muscle from her leg to save part of her arm. Wow. So, you know... She was having a lot of trouble. And, you know, as you could imagine, when Singleton was released early, she fell into a spiral. And for many years, she said she had nightmares and paranoia. She was convinced that he was going to find her and kill her. And remember what he said to her in the courtroom. She had every reason to feel this way. I I agree. And actually, while he was in prison, Singleton even wrote letters to Vincent's lawyer threatening her. 
I can't believe this guy. Like another reason he shouldn't have been let out early. Luckily, Mary did have a son with a man that she was dating, and she did end up having a short marriage in the late 80s, lasted a couple of years. Um, So she had some relationships here and there, but she had a lot of trouble, you know, maintaining gainful employment. And she did have trouble, it sounds like, in her social relationships at this time. So because of the tremendous backlash from residents in the town surrounding the California prison, Singleton decided he would move to Florida. He goes to Sulphur Springs, Tampa. Um, the reason he goes there, he was actually born and raised in this area. Okay. So he moved to this area and he started going by the name Bill. His neighbors knew him as a nice man who seemed completely normal. Oh, yeah. It seems that some neighbors had heard about some attack that happened in California, but they dismissed it because they believed Singleton when he says he was just framed and he had never done anything. While in Florida, it seemed possible that maybe Larry had put his violent past behind him. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, you're too smart for this. He did commit some petty theft crimes here and there. He served some jail time, but there was no indication of violence. Now, that was until February 19th, 1997. 97? That's a long time later. Okay. Wait, wouldn't he be in his 70s then? Exactly. I can't wait to talk about all this with you. There's so much here. So February 19th, 1997. Larry crossed paths with 31-year-old Roxanne Hayes. Now, she was a sex worker and a mother of three. Hayes was just on her way home from getting groceries when Singleton propositioned her and they decided to go back to his place. That same day, a painter came by Singleton's home and he knocked on the door, but there was no answer. So the painter kind of went around and looked in a window and through the window, he saw a naked Larry Singleton violently beating a naked woman in his living room. Oh. The painter called 911 to report the gruesome scene. So police arrive. They knock on his door. Larry answers the door with blood all over him. And he tells the police he cut himself while chopping some vegetables. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Wait, it gets worse. Then the phone rings. So Larry says, you know, excuse me, let me go get that. He leaves the officer at the front door. He goes in to answer the phone. And as you would expect, the officer kind of looks in, see what's going on. And that's where he spotted Hayes' dead body on the floor. She had been stabbed more than a dozen times. Singleton was arrested immediately. He claimed from the beginning, you know, I did kill Roxanne, but he's going to claim mental incompetency. Oh, I thought he was going to try self-defense. Well, no, he does self-defense. He does a little mixture between the two. After his arrest, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital for nine days after trying to commit suicide. So at the trial for the murder of Roxanne Hayes, Mary Vincent testified during the penalty phase. For those of you who don't know, when there's a death-eligible crime, a lot of states will have a bifurcated trial, which is when you have a guilt phase and then you have a penalty phase. Now, she was not required to do this, but she did this because she wanted to do whatever she could to help put this man away. And once again, she got on the stand and retold the story from the horrific attacks that occurred 20 years prior. This time, many would agree that justice was finally served. On April 14, 1998, Singleton, now 70 years old, mm-hmm. was sentenced to death for the first-degree murder of Roxanne Hayes. Praise be. However, Megan, just four years later, he would die from cancer in a Florida prison hospital. All right. Well, yeah, at least he wasn't out Again. Either way, this might be where Singleton's story ends, but Mary Vincent pressed on. After she testified at Singleton's murder trial, Mary went to Washington, D.C., where she testified in favor of a congressional bill called the No Second Chances for Murderers, Rapists, or Child Molesters Act. Now, this act proposed that anyone convicted of murder should receive the death penalty 
or at the very least be in prison for life without the possibility of parole, and that rape or a dangerous sexual offense involving a child under the age of 14 should be in prison for life without the possibility of parole. So she actually went to testify in front of Congress, stressing that it was because of Singleton's lenient sentence that he was able to subsequently kill Roxanne Hayes. True. Unfortunately, the bill was never enacted. However, as we'll talk about, California has changed their laws since then. Vincent was also awarded over $2.5 million in a civil suit against Singleton. Unfortunately, she was never able to collect any payment because Singleton did not have the money. So even though a jury is going to award you the money, that doesn't mean that you're getting any money if there's no money to be had. Right. Now, it's unclear exactly what Mary's doing today. There hasn't been that much written about her recently. In the early 2000s, there were articles that would talk about she's an artist and she paints powerful women as action figures who are strong and ready to fight and, you know, all about like these women heroines. Wow. Yeah. Um, She also was doing some family portraits and she was a very good artist. Now, keep in mind, she was doing her art with prosthetic arms. Uh, That's what I was thinking. Wow. Yep. At some point, she also had a foundation called the Mary Vincent Foundation, but I could not find any information about, you know, where it is today or if it's still operating. So, you know, I mentioned she's the mother of two adult boys, one from a previous marriage, one from a previous relationship. And she still was talking at crime victims events mm-hmm. and she was remarried. And, it's you know, it seemed like things were going OK for her. All right. So this is one of those cases where there were many victims, but there was some good that came of these events. Right. We saw the legislation slash policy changes by having the Singleton bill. Also, cases like Mary's have probably deterred other young women from hitchhiking. Yeah. Right. I mean, we know that hitchhiking fell out of favor for many reasons, but I think one of the reasons it fell out of favor is because cases like this, the media portrayed and, you know, it scared people as it should have. Between the new policy and less women hitchhiking, I am pretty, I feel pretty confident to say that Mary has saved countless lives. And this really shows victims that there is hope and there is life after such a traumatic event. And you could use what happens for good. She's quite a survivor. So I have a lot more, but I can easily stop there because why don't we talk about, Megan, do you want to, let's talk about, did the system get it right? I think it's clear the system did not get it right the first time. Clearly, this is a clear big no, of course not. Absolutely not. I don't even think there's more to say about that. I really don't. There's not. I mean, did they get it right the second time, sentencing yes. him to death? Yeah. Yes. If, if you're someone who believes in the death penalty, absolutely. At that point, it was he's too one of late, those cases. Sorry, he's one of those cases, like you know, I've said I make exceptions. Like, I'm not usually pro-death penalty, but I'm going to say uh, for him, appropriate. Yep. Um, then there's theories. So I was trying to think of some theories that could help us understand Singleton. And I don't have much on his background. I know we had a few failed marriages. He had a strained relationship with people in his family. But I don't think we know enough to really dive in. But I think it's relevant to talk about victimization theories a little bit. I do. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, again, as we always tell our listeners, victimization theories are not to blame the victim. They are to help us provide an understanding of why someone was victimized. Correct. So when we think of victimization theories, there's victim precipitation theory. I figured that's what the one you were going with was. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about victim precipitation theories, it talks about how there's something that a victim does that unknowingly, you know, provokes the attacker. Um, So there may have been a certain characteristic about Mary, unbeknownst to her, that 
cause Larry to hone in on her. Because remember, she was with two other people, but he picked her out. So we don't know what it was, but maybe, you know, maybe she reminded him of a family member that he was angry with or, you know, who knows. But there's also lifestyle theory and deviant place theory. Again, being a hitchhiker can put you at increased risk of victimization. Yes. Now, I'll I'll just also add, um, even though we don't know much about his background and I, I, I would be uncomfortable theorizing why he did it. I think he was definitely, uh, he had all the makings and the markings of a serial killer. So I think that it's only because of, you know, possibly bouts in prison and other things that he didn't actually go on to a serial career, but I think he could have. Hey, it's also possible he killed people that we don't know about, right? That's very true. And one other thing I want to say is the fact that he was 70 years old when he committed the murder of Roxanne Hayes. It's so rare to see someone still committing crime at that age. Very odd. They usually age out, even serial offenders, serial killers. Very, very odd. Regardless, he was caught. He was apprehended. He was punished. Justice was served in the end. And like you said, I think Mary seemed to have done a lot to help victims and a lot to further her own life. So, I mean, I think she's very admirable. And while this was a difficult case, Amy, I do, I do, I did see some of the the positives that, you know, came from this. So thank you. Thank you so much to our patrons. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include sfgate.com, washingtonpost.com, seattle times, salon.com, la times, commondocs.house.gov, sun centennial, dallas morning news, san francisco chronicle, and i survived. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.